Greetings, magnificent souls, to the Attract Health, Build Wealth podcast, where we have open and honest discussions about ourselves. This is a place where we break down, break away, and break through codependency, allowing ourselves to attract health, build wealth, and live a peaceful life. We are tired of being sick and tired. We are tired, but we are not giving up. We know that there is something magnificent inside of us. And because we are fighting daily, hourly, and by the minute, fighting ourselves, our kids, our spouses, we have to do things differently. We have to break the cycle. We don't have a million chances. We have to be happy now. We have to find a way. So how do we do that? How is that possible? If you look around at what society is telling you, they tell you that what we're doing is impossible. Yet it's happening every single day. And it's happening through the practice and the love that we call awakening the magnificent soul. We are all magnificent souls. And these are our stories of healing. Today, in this episode, I am so, 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 so massively excited to welcome Darlene Lancer, to the podcast. Darlene was such a huge part of the beginning of my healing journey and having to spend time with her in this beautiful healing container is a major, major thing for me. And Darlene brings a wide range of professional and life experience to her practice as a licensed marriage and family therapist and also a relationship and codependency expert. She wrote Codependency for Dummies, which I read and gave a five-star review to, and Conquering Shame and Codependency, Eight Steps to Freeing the True You. And over the course of 30 years, she's helped men and women recover from codependency and trauma. And here's my interview with Darlene Lancer. All right, Darlene, welcome to the podcast. I am so honored to have you here. I don't know if you remember, but um, you have been in my life, whether you know it or not, for a really long time. (laughs) And I really appreciate all the work that you've been doing about codependency. So thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure to be invited and share with your audience. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, I do have a question about how did you get, you've been in the codependency realm for so long. How, how did you, how did you end up there? <laughs> well, I've been on the codependence <laughs> for, oh, okay. for a long, long time. And, um, and then I became a therapist uh, over 30 years ago. And I was blogging and writing also because I enjoy writing. And um, I had been in Al-Anon for many years uh, because I was married to an alcoholic and uh, Wiley Publications found one of my uh, blogs on codependency and asked me to write codependency for dummies. Wow. And uh, I was actually had to compete with other writers and, and I guess therapists. And when I started doing an outline for it, I realized that, you know, I was like, this was, this is what I've been doing with clients anyway, helping them uh, psychologically, you'd call it individuate um, is the term, but uh, helping them overcome codependency for a few decades. And I knew this inside out personally and professionally and clinically. And 
So um, they gave me, they said, go ahead and write the book. And then after that, um, Hazelden Foundation had read it and thought it was good and asked me to write one on conquering shame and codependency. Mm. So I got even deeper into the subject uh, with my research. And once I started applying the principles I had learned uh, about healing shame, uh, my clients were recovering much faster. And that was something that, at least when I was in 12-step programs years ago, it wasn't talked about. And what I find is things are speeding up um, and that people that have recovered now are passing on what they've learned as I am. Mm. And so the people are healing faster. In fact, when I was in meetings, people didn't talk about domestic violence. They didn't talk about trauma. They didn't mention the word intimacy or codependency. Uh, so there was things that now the people that are in 12 step, 12 step meetings are much more aware and they pass on that knowledge and people can heal faster. And because of, of course, the internet, all this information is ubiquitous. Right. Uh, because before people are, uh, one of the signs of a dysfunctional family and relationship is that it's a closed system. And if you're with an abuser, you think you're the only one. And so, and you may even be controlled so that, um, that your partner doesn't want you talking to others or doesn't want you going to therapy. So that's part of the problem. The same with the, because of the shame with alcoholism. Right. So there's much more, what you're doing is a, is a benefit to others. And so people can learn and, uh, and change. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I definitely feel that. Um, I feel, you know, you're like, you're an OG, original gangster, like, when, when did you, you? When did you write your first book? When did they pick up the your blog? What, I started writing it in 2011. Yeah, I don't know. My blog may have been a couple of years before that. Yeah, but I had been doing therapy since I don't know 1987. Right. Like yeah, I'm interested to talk a little bit too about maybe how the definition has changed because that's something that I personally. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of had to define it for myself and that's what I've just, that's what I've been talking about too. Um, but yeah, I definitely feel like the more that you heal, the more that you can pass on what you learned. And I feel like it does, it does accelerate the, the teachings it does. Mm -hmm. for sure. It does. I don't know if you've heard of the hundredth monkey no. phenomenon. Okay. Well, researchers, they found that um, monkeys on this Island, learn to peel bananas um, and they started teaching their young and then uh, monkeys on another island like started doing it much faster and then they did that experiments with rats and they taught them how to um, navigate a maze or something like that and then they taught rats in, from that was I think in Boston or something and then in California the rats were learning faster Mm. There's this idea that there's field theory. I won't go into the metaphysics or the science of it, but that right. you know, when even when you learn, and now like science, when they learn something in one country, suddenly they're learning it in another country too. So everything is speeded up. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Um, I'm interested to hear 
I bet, I don't know, we haven't really discussed this, but I'm guessing that you have seen the definition of codependency change throughout the years. Well, and, I did a lot of research about the definitions in writing my book too. Yeah, yeah, and the, your personal experience, I'm sure as well. Mm -hmm. um, can you give the listeners, you know, a little bit of a timeline? I think that would be great just to, just to hear oh. how we arrived I don't know how you want to work from back to front or front to back, but I would love, I think they would really enjoy kind of hearing the evolution of um, okay. codependency. Well, I go into this in codependency for dummies and. Which I've and, read by the way, which is amazing. Okay. In 1989, <laughs> uh, like 22 leaders came together in, in the field and they came up with a definition that codependency is, I'm reading it from my book. Codependency is a pattern of painful dependence upon compulsive behaviors and approval of others to find safety, self-worth, and identity. Recovery is possible. Mm -hmm. uh, but that wasn't the end of attempts to define it. It's not uh, in the uh, clinical um, diagnostic list of the uh, mental health disorders. So there's many definitions and different researchers come up with different ones. Originally, uh, uh, Melody Beatty was one of the first writers uh, on the subject. She was, I remember reading her book, I think in the seventies. And uh, she defines it as um, letting another person's behavior affect you and obsessed with controlling the other person's behavior. Mm. And then there were mental health. It, it came out of research with um, alcoholics and their spouses. And first the term was co-alcoholic. And then family therapists found that, well, after the partner got sober, that the codependence behavior continued and that actually it predated the marriage and that it mm -hmm. stemmed from having a dysfunctional childhood family. There was illness in the family. Uh, there may have been mental health issues. So there were other reasons that led to the codependency that predated the marriage to the alcoholic. And you, so then the term started spreading to other relationships beyond alcoholic marriages. And some researchers thought like someone named um, Robert Southey, a family therapist, said that it results from prolonged exposure to oppressive rules. Mm. They also found that if you have a, a controlling mother, that that could lead to like an obsessive con compulsive controlling mother, that can lead to codependency in the children. So um, they do see that it's, it's transgenerational. So you may have a, an addict grandparent and your parents are not but the behavior uh, gets transferred down. Mm -hmm. And uh, I came to the conclusion that it has nothing to do really with your, whether you're in a relationship because it has to do with your relationship with yourself. Mm, yeah. And yeah, and so that's one of the myths that if you're not in a relationship, you're not codependent. Um, also, uh, I haven't seen other people write about this, but if you're in a relationship and you think you're codependent or you think your partner is, you both likely are, mm -hmm. you know, unless you're just dating for a couple months or something. But if you're 
for any length of time. Uh, it's a dynamic that both of you share. We're really attracted to someone who's of a similar uh, emotional development, even though the behavior may be different. Right. So I, in my opinion, narcissists are codependent too. They're very dependent. They're, their defense mechanisms are different. So whereas they may uh, demand their needs be met, uh, a stereotypical codependent will deny their needs. Correct. But the other, most of the symptoms are the same. And I've written articles about narcissists are codependent too. So I came up with the idea that codependents have this lost self. They're alienated from their their authentic self, their real self, because they had to accommodate uh, their parent. And if a parent can't, doesn't have enough self and self-esteem, they their needs will come first or they will not see you as a separate self. They won't encourage independence or they'll be the opposite. They won't give you any guidance. They'll just neglect you. Mm -hmm. So you don't get to develop uh, a self. If you have a narcissistic or an addict parent, then you have to accommodate them. You don't feel safe to express yourself, to be yourself, to be loved for who you authentically are. Mm -hmm. uh, your needs get shamed. Uh, you don't get emotional um, needs met in that family, even though you might get all your material needs met. So that's how it gets transferred from generation to, to another. Mm -hmm. So, and I thought when I did some research, I found that there were others that have the same definition or similar. The, uh, Charles Whitfield uh, wrote that codependents are alienated from their true self through wounding that occurs in childhood. So my definition is more um, symptom oriented. And the definition I came up with mm -hmm. is that it's a person um, who can't function from their innate self and their thinking and their behavior revolves around someone else or a substance or a process. So I include addicts in this too. And the addicts I know and um, other codependents said, well, of course. I had a big argument with my publisher who said, that can't be because there's addicts and there's codependents. <laughs> There's no crossover. Mm -hmm. So we finally worked that out yeah. before the book came out. But um, once you get abstinent from, let's say, alcohol or drugs, all the codependency comes up. It's just that they're addicted to, um, you know, the, the substance or the process, like gambling or something. Mm -hmm. And the codependent is addicted to them. Right. So I once dated a man who... Uh, uh, we were both dancers and um, I used to uh, look forward to going out dancing to see him. And he admitted to me, well, he went there because he could have a drink. So, <laughs> so, so, if it all you're not going to get your together sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're not going to get your intimacy needs met with an addict because, right. you know, the object of your addiction comes first. Whether, and that's, if you're codependent, you're going to put the other person first rather yeah. than yourself. Thank you for sharing that. And I love, you know, I, I don't know how much I can express how, you know, how much that your work kind of means to me, but I will keep saying it forever. 
Um, <laughs> but the, I think, oh man, so much good stuff about what you said, because I definitely felt that. And I don't even know if it was something that I came across in your work, but I kind of came to the conclusion that I was completely disconnected from myself for years. You know, like I didn't know how to make decisions. I didn't know what my emotions were. I didn't know who was good for me and who was bad for me. I just kind of took whatever like attention was offered me, you know, it was just kind of all these developmental things that I never really experienced. And I also really connected with the part with you when you said about um, the behaviors and the processes surrounding codependency, because as I grew into my healing, I realized that this like was pervasive in my life. Like it, it had to do with relationships for sure with people, but it also had relationships to do where um, other things to do with other relationships, like money, like um, my weight, the way I look, you know, like the behaviors that I would do to kind of, kind of, I call it fill my love tank because, you know, seeking validation um, that just, it just brings so much light to that. So I really appreciate that. Well, thank you. <clears throat> Underneath uh, codependency and, sh and shame are uh, a feeling of emptiness, and that's from that disconnection. Right. And, well, I've written uh, a lot about emptiness. Uh, there's psychological, spiritual, existential emptiness, but psychological emptiness that uh, affects codependence uh, can lead to depression. And it's because that, of that disconnection. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is, we look outside of ourselves to fill that up. But the, the sad thing is that the more an, an addict will look outside too for a, a drug or food or uh, a process of gambling or work or something. And the problem is that the more you look outside yourself, the further apart, the further you get from your true self. So it's a negative feedback loop. It's a self-perpetuating addiction mm -hmm. because you feel more empty and then you crave more that relationship, that drug, mm -hmm. that habit. And then you get further and further away from who you are. The gap gets wider. Mm -hmm. And so there's no way to get it outside. You have to fill it from, go back inside. And that's hard if you didn't get that kind of presence and nurturing and attention from a parent because you don't have those skills. That's one of the steps of healing is learning how to nurture ourselves. Right, absolutely, absolutely. So beautiful. <laughs> Do you, um, and this is a question we didn't discuss. So I'm just wondering like, why is codependency for me is it feels so, like underground it feels so like sneaky right because i you know all, all of you know we're talking about like a lot of things like it's big right addictions behaviors not feeling your true inner divine self you know these, like, these are big concepts but codependency kind of runs the vein through a lot of this I don't really know if I have a question, but I'm just like, it, it amazes me sometimes that like, it's just not, 
I don't know. I think it's, you know, we're talking about it more obviously these days. And like you said, it just, you know, we're, we're, there's the internet, there's all this great information out there. But I also think that, you know, treating the symptoms like addiction or like, um, you know, eating disorders or fill in the blank, name it. Um, why is there not more focus on something like codependency or, you know, like you mentioned, it's not in the DSM. Is it, is it just too hard or what? I don't know. What's your take on that? Well, a couple of things. First of all, um, it's so widespread right. that it, everybody would end up like, you know, a mental illness and the insurance wouldn't want to cover that. Okay. <laughs> so there's the system. Okay. There's that. Yes. Okay. Uh, furthermore, the idea of it is a very, based on Western um, uh social mores mm -hmm. or philosophy, because in collectivist cultures, like in the Middle East, in Asia, in Latin America, the family is more important than the individual. Oh, so I in the West, it's, you know, the individual is more important, you know, than the, than the family in some respects. This is difficult for people that have immigrated and they see me and they have a different value system than their family and they have a lot of conflicts. But anyway, so you might say from a from an American point of view, well, it's it's a problem worldwide. But if you're living, you know, in the Middle East or Latin America, they would say, well, you know, the Westerners, they're just too self-centered. Mm. They they're too selfish. And so it's a different point of view. So that may be another reason why you might not consider it universal. We would think it's a universal problem, but from another perspective, it's not a universal problem. We're the ones with the problem. They say that's why, you know, in America, there's so much, you know, depression and suicide and right, yeah, and because, and some of that's true because of disconnection from the family, but um, not because of um, healing from codependency. Right. That makes a lot. So that's of another thing. Some people think that healing codependency is leading to more divorces and more loneliness, uh, and that we discount the need for relationship. I actually go into this argument in my book, mm -hmm. and the pros and cons. Uh, I think there's a misconception if you haven't been in a codependent relationship, if you're not codependent, or don't know what it's really like, aren't aware. Um, you're thinking about the benefits of attachment and relationship. And now there's a lot of emphasis on attachment theory. And, but the problem is that codependents have a dysfunctional attachment. I have a blog called uh, my website, like how to change your attachment style. Mm -hmm. Basically the answer is recover from codependency. Yeah, I would because, agree. <laughs> because the attachment, uh, in codependent relationships causes pain mm -hmm. to reap the rewards of a healthy relationship, which could be supportive. It could be uh, really a home base and help you to be more independent and confident and energized. But if you're in a codependent relationship, you're going to feel drained. You're going to feel um, that your needs aren't getting met. You're going to be obsessed with the other person you're just going to be unhappy most of the time. You might be ridden with fear and guilt, walking on eggshells, 
Right. Uh, afraid to say what you feel, ask your needs. So it's not a healthy relation. It's not a healthy attachment. Yes, yes. Yeah, it is so pervasive. It's so interesting. I, I feel like just random, but it's just so interesting how, you know, all these different concepts are really just different words. <laughs> you know, it's um, like I said, I just feel like like codependency was so sneaky on me, at least. And I'm sure I'm sure a lot of people <laughs> feel the, the same way. Yes, I, I say that on my website that it's very it's like sneaky and, and subtle and mm. powerful. Though. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you don't realize you're in a slip. You're backsliding until after the fact. Yeah. Uh, recovery is not a straight line. No, oh, gosh. Yes. You might, you know, feel like, well, I detached. I'm not codependent with that person anymore. And then you find out, well, you're codependent with your work or your child or right. something yeah. else. The gym, <laughs> you know, it, yeah, it's crazy. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I know we definitely want to get into um, your steps for healing and how to get started. Um, I know you have some, um, some online materials that we will uh, get out to the listeners at some point, but it mm -hmm. can be walk, can do you mind walking us kind of through where to get started or um, some steps towards healing for those listeners out there? Okay, well, like you said, it encompasses so much. It's like a fish doesn't know it's in water <laughs> because that's, you know, we don't see the air that we breathe. Um, and the first obstacle to healing is denial. Mm -hmm. I have a whole chapter on denial. And denial is considered the hallmark of addiction. And that's true for codependence too. So um, many people write me or ask me, like, how can I help? my codependent friend or my codependent wife or something. They don't realize that they're codependent too. And uh, so there's not just denial of codependency. Sometimes people, and myself included for a long time, aren't aware that they're in an abusive relationship. Right. They're not aware that their needs aren't getting met. They don't even know what their needs are other than like food and water and sleep. <laughs> sex or something like that so emotional needs as I mentioned usually don't get met in healthy ways in a dysfunctional family denial of feelings many codependents aren't aware of their feelings yeah. or they can't name them or they're just intellectual but they don't actually feel them in their body right kind of disconnected yeah I definitely had to learn yeah, yeah I had to I had to learn through a lot of support how to do that for sure yeah so and part of the denial makes it hard to start recovery because if the focus is on someone else a lot of codependents are in a relationship with someone who's troubled right i was myself yeah and so you want to help that other person i think i was in elanon for three years before i realized well the program uh, I'm going to have to start working this program for me, mm. not, you know, to, to help someone else or not to save my marriage that I needed help myself. Because when I first went to meetings, it was to help the alcoholic. I thought, well, I'm not the one with the problem. So there was a lot of denial around that. Mm. And I didn't understand a lot of the terminology and speaking about not being connected to yourself when I finally decided to get a sponsor, maybe that was after six months or something, 
um, I would call my sponsor and I would report on how the alcoholic was doing. Mm-hmm. And she was very patient. She'd say, that's fine, Darlene. I'll talk to you tomorrow. <laughs> so she was very patient with me. And if you asked me how I was or how I was doing, I really would just say fine. You know, I don't know. And um, so getting in touch with your feelings, learning to name them mm-hmm. is important. So you can just go through the day and say, ask yourself, what am I feeling? And see, and I, in my book, I have a list of about 200 feelings. And you could Google a list of feelings too. And see if you can name it. And you may not be able to right away. And research has shown if you uh, call yourself by name, it can be very helpful. So if you say, for instance, oh, Darlene, you're sad. Or Darlene, you're angry. Mm-hmm. Or you feel guilty. And you name it and you call yourself by name. That can be very helpful. It's a form of mirroring that you may not have received as a child. Right. Kind of a reparenting. Yeah. Journaling is helpful for all of that. So just throughout the day, you just ask yourself, you know, what am I feeling? And I would add, and it's okay. Mm. Because to a large extent, our feelings have been shamed. It's very close to who we are. Mm -hmm. So don't, you know, who do you think you are, or you're too big for your britches, or um, I've had clients that told me that because of religion, the idea of pride was considered, and self-confidence was considered conceit. Mm-hmm. It's sinful. Um, so uh, letting it, your or anger was punished. Right. So you might know not know that you're angry. You might just Listen to the tapes in your head or a lot of resentment and negative feelings about somebody. So just let yourself say, oh, I guess I'm angry and it's okay. Mm, I love that. It's okay. Mm-hmm. So those are some things. And the other thing is because shame is so integral to all of the codependent behavior. Most of it are like defenses to feeling shame. Uh, beware of your negative self-talk. Mm-hmm. Write it down. I have a little YouTube where I say you could wear a rubber band and snap, snap it whenever you hear yourself call yourself a name or shit on yourself. Mm-hmm. You should have done that. You should, shouldn't have done that. So finding fault with yourself. And then we find fault with other people because we're, we're never satisfied with ourselves. Maybe you had a critical parent or maybe you just realized that you better be very careful uh, and what you say and what you do, so you won't be rejected or punished or shamed or ignored by your parent. So you develop these voices in your head, this super ego, to try to protect you because mm-hmm. your survival depended on that relationship as a child. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a big, um, a big aha moment for me. Oh, it's been like five years now, but my I was the I was on the critical parent realm. <laughs> but there was a big aha moment for me when the very same day, my, my dad said something to me that was critical of me and my boyfriend at the time, I like major toxic relationship at the time said the exact verbatim mm. same thing. And I was like, no, this like, this is something's wrong here. 
that was actually kind of at the beginning of my like you know healing journey okay yeah well the thing is it's like if we have um a lot of shame and low self-esteem which stems from shame mm -hmm. uh we're not going to be able to receive compliments we're not going to be able to accept attention right and uh feel uncomfortable receiving gifts or anything i just recently wrote a blog on why it's hard to receive mm -hmm. so it's one thing to to leave uh, abusive relationships but then you know if you want love in your life you have to be able to receive the good too sometimes that's the hard part because it's how you treat yourself again so if you have a template that says you're not enough or whatever you could fill it in pretty enough smart enough successful enough you're gonna meet somebody who's going to confirm that yes and if if somebody um doesn't you won't trust them you'll think they have poor taste you'll make excuses you'll think what do they want or uh they they really don't know me you'll have all kinds of I've even um, have couples where, let's say, a husband compliments his wife, and she actually hears a criticism. I asked them to repeat it like two more times, and she did not hear the compliment. Oh. So we filter out. We have these negative filters so that reality confirms our outer reality confirms mm -hmm. our inner reality. Mm -hmm. So. We have to heal from the inside out. Begin within. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I'm on that kick lately too. It's, I've, been, I've been writing about with all my posts right now is that, you know, boundaries come from the inside and go out. Obviously self-love comes from the inside and goes out. Your energy inside out. It's just a huge, it's a big paradigm shift. Right. So, so people will say like, okay, how do I set boundaries or what should my boundaries be in this situation? I said, well, that's for you to decide. And bound, setting boundaries to me is like graduate work because first you have to know what you feel. We talked about denial of feelings and, yep. and what you need. Yep. And my boundaries might be different than your boundaries. What I'm comfortable with or what you're comfortable with. It's like not right or wrong. So you have to be able to identify that. And the next step is you have to be able to honor that. Mm -hmm. Like what you're feeling is okay. And what you need is okay. Because people are always saying, well, is this because I'm, because of my dysfunctional childhood that I want that or need that? And I say, well, it doesn't matter. That's what you want right now. So let it be okay. Mm -hmm. You know, am I asking too much? No, that's what you need. Right. Yeah. So, and then having the courage and the words and learning to be assertive, to be able to communicate it in a way that you'll be heard. And then after that, you might have to have consequences because the other person might not follow through. So boundaries are not to change someone else's behavior. They're actually to protect yourself. Yep. So that's a concept too. You have to understand. Yeah. And, uh, Often the person's behavior will change, but if they don't, then you have to take steps to honor yourself and protect yourself. Mm -hmm. I agree. I love that. So good. So good. Well, what else? Anything else coming to mind that we... Well, if you'd like, I could show you um, steps to recovery. 
that uh, I could discuss it or I could show you some images that are coming out on my new website soon? Um, I think if you don't mind discussing it just to make it easier for yeah. the podcast, sure. that would be great. Okay, well, the first step, well, the overall concept, and I think the whole point of the first of the 12 steps programs is self-love. Mm. So years ago, people would say to me, well, you're just going to have to learn to love yourself. And I just hated hearing that because I didn't know what in the world that meant. Yeah. And uh, it's more than getting massages or bubble baths. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> My book is a lot harder than that. Yeah. The book that I'm working on is Self-Love Is. It's uh, 27 Secrets to Start Loving Yourself Today because of that. It's because like doing your nails is awesome, but how, how good does it make you feel? And is it really an action that brings, you know, that, you know, is a, it's a, is a, a, a perfect example of love in your heart. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, it could be that you were raised with the idea that appearance is so important. Yeah. So, you know, so I would just say that many of us, um, you know, never experienced what it means to, uh, to really feel accepted for who we are oh, yeah. and the contentment that comes from that. And so our task is to learn to accept ourselves, uh, forgive ourselves, and really love ourselves for who we are uh, and not how we perform or how we look. Uh, so, and then after that is... Um, is that we take our focus off of the other person or the substance, whatever we're addicted to, and really focus on ourselves. I mean, that, that's really the first step because you can't recover if you're trying to change somebody else. Right. That's yeah. part of the problem. Yeah, that's a never-ending battle. So the first step of the 12 steps is like, I'm powerless over people, places, and things, right? Or I'm powerless over alcohol if you're an addict. So knowing that you really are not going to be able to change somebody else and really just not know it, not just intellectually, but really in your heart. And so what are you going to do to change? Because I have clients that say, he still hasn't changed. I've told him I've threatened or her. And I say, well, but you, I hear you haven't gone to meetings. You're not doing this work. Mm -hmm. You're not, you know, what about, the exercises we talked about. What are you doing to change? So it's pretty hard to change, period. So it's it's hard enough for us to change ourselves, let alone someone else. And then um, it's gaining autonomy, um, becoming, actualizing who we are. So we have to get to know ourselves, as I said. And that starts with detaching, letting go, of how somebody else is. And again, focusing on ourselves. It doesn't mean being detaching doesn't mean that you're cold or you leave the relationship. It means that you are no longer reacting. So your buttons aren't getting pushed, that you're, you're staying connected to yourself. You're staying in your own lane, as someone says. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to get in to convince somebody, you know, if someone criticizes you and you start defending yourself and explaining yourself, what the subtext of that is you're telling the other person they have a power 
to judge you. They have the right to approve of you. So, you know, a boundary would be, well, that's your opinion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and walk away. You don't have to convince yeah. anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mentioned denial. Uh, it's hard to know when you're in denial because the whole point of denial is that you don't know, right? So <laughs> I get a lot of, I, I get a lot of messages as well from people that denial to me, I don't know if it's the same as, as you, but the word that comes up in my head also is victim that are very in like the victim mode of I'm really, you know, like it is denial, right? That deep denial of like, you know, why is this person being this way? Or how do I change this person? Or how do I make this person see this and this and this? Um, yeah, I see that a lot too. Well, I remember one time many years ago, my sponsor said, I guess she was frustrated with me. And she said something like, I sounded like a victim. And I said, you know, I don't want to feel this way. I wish I didn't feel this way. In other words, and she apologized, but um, (laughs) (laughs) it's when we feel like we have no power. Yeah, that's it. We have no, we have no authority. You know, the word authority, autonomy and authority come from author. You know, the, you become the author of your life that you decide what behavior you'll accept. You decide what you want and need and who you will let talk to you a certain way, who you will be friends with, mm-hmm. that we get to make those choices. So if you feel like a victim and there's a difference between and I have a blog of 10 steps, how to not be a victim, something mm-hmm. like that. So if you're, and denial can feed into that because if you're having expectations, let's say you have an expectation that a narcissist won't be critical of you mm-hmm. or is going to empathize with you and that you keep feeling victimized by that, then you're not accepting reality. You're in denial of who this person is. Right, yeah. Or that the alcoholic isn't going to drink. So you have to, um, there's like four A's, I think, of recovery. And one is abstinence. That might be detaching when you're talking about addiction to a a person. Um, And then uh, awareness. So learn all you can about codependency and recovery. Listen to Lily's podcast (laughs) and uh, read my books. Mm-hmm. And then acceptance, and that could take years. Mm-hmm. So you may know the information, but accepting that that's the truth and reality, that's going to be hard because we don't want that. You know, we don't want to accept that our partner is cheating on us. We'd rather look the other way. Right. Might not want to accept that our child is an addict. Mm-hmm. And so we, we brush it off or we, and we don't know that we're doing it because we're in denial. So uh, in my book, The Dummies Book, I have, and on my web, new website that's coming out, a list of some questions you can ask yourself to see if you're in denial. So if you're thinking things will get better at a certain time, like after we have a child, mm-hmm. you know, when we have more money, if, or if only you have the if onlys, or you rationalize, make excuses for someone else, If you're hiding aspects of your relationship that you're embarrassed to tell other people, you know, those are some things, signs that you might be in denial 
or minimizing your own pain. Well, I remember when my, my late husband was uh, being verbally abusive, I would tell myself, I know he loves, I know he doesn't mean that. I know he loves me. It still wasn't okay that he talked to me that way, but it took a while for me to figure that out. Yeah, from going from not knowing to knowing, right? And then accepting. Yeah, and then the last thing is action. Mm. So once you accept reality for what it is, okay, then you can take action. As long as you want reality to be different, you're stuck in like, uh, you know, a hamster wheel. Right. So let's say you lost your legs in a terrible accident or a leg or something. And of course there's trauma and there's pain about that and there's suffering and there's anger. There's all these feelings you go through. So part of it coming out of denial is also going through grief. Yes. You know, when I, I finally got it that, oh, my husband might die of alcoholism. And I spent a couple of weeks like just grieving. He was very much alive, but I had to grieve that possibility yes. and let go and realize that was his journey. Yeah. I had nothing to do with his sobriety. I could make it, I could enable it. So, you know, but I wasn't going to get him sober. In fact, overcoming codependency helped him to look at himself more because I was stepping out of the problem. It gave him back his problem. Right. Yes. Oh, I love that. So, so by example, like if somebody lost a leg, let's say, so they go through this period of grieving and then they say, okay, I guess this is my life. What am I going to do about it? How am I going to live my life now and learn how to function that way? And maybe one day learn to do athletics with a prosthesis or something. But if you're still stuck in, you can't accept this reality, then you, you don't make effective change. Mm-hmm. So um, anyway, so coming out of denial and then building self-esteem. So how we talk to ourselves, you know, taking risks, learning to be assertive, uh, learning to be assertive and say no to unacceptable behavior or just say no to requests that you don't want mm-hmm. uh, or things you don't want to do. Uh, that raises your self-esteem and raising your self-esteem will help you to be more assertive. They go together and uh, poor dysfunctional communication and low self-esteem are symptoms. They're core symptoms of codependency and they're learned from our childhood. And you know what? They can be unlearned and we can learn to have self-esteem. We can learn to be assertive and we can start turning things around. Yes. It's not easy. You know, it's simple, but not easy. Yeah. It takes courage. It takes support. And then, you know, the, another step is dealing with the original trauma and healing our wounds, mm-hmm. talking to someone, uh, looking at the source of the problem. So that could come at the beginning or it could come later. Um, you can make you start changing one thing and everything's just like you said, it's so interwoven, mm-hmm. but the good thing it news is you change one thing, it changes the whole puzzle too. Yeah. And I feel like your the outlook changes, just like what you're saying is that you look at, you're able just to look at one thing a certain way. It, it just translates. It's just the, it's the beautiful flow. I think of life, you know, like just translates 
into all other parts of life. You shift one thing and the whole clockwork shifts. Yeah. So, and then the later stages is that then you're really expressing your passion, your true self, you're more connected to it, you're more autonomous, and then you can, you know, bring that into the world mm. and follow your dreams and your passions and you have more joy in your life. So many beautiful people too sitting on that, which is why, you know, why I'm here, <laughs> you know, why, why we, you know, I feel like why, at least I can't speak for you, but why I do the work that I do. Um, so I just want to close it off a little bit. Um, it went longer than expected. I could probably talk to you for hours, of course. <laughs> it's a big subject. Yes, it is. Um, anything else you want to add or um, I would just love for your take. And I've had like, I think I have maybe 200 episodes on the podcast, you know, uh, we connected on Instagram and um, mm -hmm. I talk a lot about, and sometimes I feel like I'm just preaching about the importance of support through all of that process that, that you're mentioning. Um, could you offer your take on if it is important, how important it is? Absolutely. Because you don't know, you know, you don't know what you don't know. You're, there's a saying in AA that it's like our stinking thinking got us where we are. Mm. Well, codependence, I mean, after talking to so many people, for instance, they would feel like being assertive sounds like being mean. Right. Or uh, asking for your needs is selfish. Putting, putting yourself first is selfish. Or you have these beliefs, you have to have a blog about um what's this called something like uh um undoing like codependent brainwashing mm -hmm. because we have these faulty beliefs that we're not aware of mm -hmm. so identifying your beliefs you won't probably won't realize what they were unless um somebody points it out to you for instance codependents usually believe that they're, if they're loved, they're lovable. So that's a fundamental belief. So they go after love. Mm. They want to seek love because they don't realize it's because of the shame underneath. And so if someone loves them, then they're okay. So uh, a lot of people feel shame that they're single. So if they're not in a relationship, something is shameful about that. Mm -hmm. Or um, one client thought that if they didn't, uh, if they weren't pretty, they, nobody would like them. Nobody would even help them. So appearance was so important. Mm -hmm. So there's so many faulty beliefs we have from our childhood. That it's hard to, and then it's hard to identify them. And the other thing is that change requires action. Mm -hmm. And doing these, we can read it and that you can get so far but in order to really um, shift and change our brain, it requires taking action. And that can be very scary. Just saying no to somebody, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, or asking from, if you don't think you're entitled to attention or you don't believe your needs have value, asking for them can feel humiliating. Right, yeah. If you're if asking or your needs were shamed as a child, so it takes the encouragement of a sponsor, a therapist, 
And uh, I think I was for years, I was actually teaching self-esteem at a time when I didn't realize that I had shame underneath. Mm -hmm. It came to me in a dream. And uh, I actually started psychoanalysis around that time. So it, it takes somebody else reflecting that back to you, giving permission, practicing uh, therapy is like a lab where you can practice with your therapist, you know, new behavior. And, and uh, so yeah, can't, can't really do it yourself. Yeah, I think that for me, the most impactful thing is what you're talking about with practice. You know, um, it with, you know, and this is kind of, I guess me on my pedestal, but the, the importance of someone in your life that's really dedicated not to do anything really besides just being there, right? Which you're not used to having anyway, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're saying to practice, to bounce mm -hmm. ideas off of, mm -hmm. to, to realize what your feelings are, how are you, like how they feel, where do you feel them in your body? You know, all of that stuff. It's just so, for me, I'm going to be doing that forever because <laughs> it feels so, you know, it feels good eventually just to like to be able to be expressive. Well, it's eventually it comes naturally. Yeah. So you don't have to think about it as much. I know when I was first started expressing, you know, vulnerable feelings, I would start crying, mm -hmm. you know, but that after a while that didn't happen or I'd get anxious before setting a boundary with someone or I yeah. feel guilty afterwards, but it's like building a muscle yes. and then it becomes easier. And then you find yourself, the neat part is like one day you, you either your friends notice how different you are from the beginning and you don't see it, or you somehow just say something spontaneously that you wouldn't have said a year before. Yes. So you can't judge yourself, you know, in the last month, although people do make changes quickly when I see them, but, uh, you know, look back like three months ago, six months ago, or a year ago yes. and see how far you've come versus, you know, where, where you want to go. So it's a, it's a life journey. It is. So. It is. I love those beautiful surprises. I love surprising myself. It's the best feeling yeah. ever. <laughs> Oh, uh, it's been such a pleasure, Darlene. Um, thank you. And delightful. Yes, ma'am. Um, where can people find you? What do you like your website? I know we talked on Instagram. Right. Um, for some reason, Instagram uh, took down my account for the moment. I have no idea. Why. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so maybe a while before that's back up. <laughs> but um, I'm on Facebook and Twitter and uh what is codependency.com mm -hmm. is my website mm -hmm. uh, and my books are there and they're also on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Mm -hmm. I have a YouTube channel, all my podcasts and videos. There's links on my media page on my website. Uh, my podcasts are also on Clipit, it, and all the links to everything are on my website. Awesome. And I also, I'll do my best to go back in the interview and try to find all the, the articles that you mentioned and try to link them up um, oh, okay. to make it easier. I'll do my best. <laughs> okay. um, but I think that would be a great reference for anyone that is um, interested in that. But I really, really appreciate you. I love well, your work. You. <laughs> and, um, Glad to be of help. Absolutely. Absolutely. I just like writing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I like it too. <laughs> And thank you again. 
Okay. Thanks. Bye-bye. Yeah.